Amen. That's a good word, church, right? Through song. I hope that you are only looking to Jesus to fill you up and to satisfy you because oftentimes we do not, right? We, we just don't believe that song. We don't believe that story that Scripture gives to us. And I, I didn't. You know, as a teenager, I thought, you know, my satisfaction, my fulfillment would be through your drugs and alcohol, and that didn't work. And then I poured myself into, my, into work, and I was engaged at the time, and my wife um, comes by the job, and I'm, like, I'm working, I don't know, 60, 70 hours a week, and she comes by with a picnic, and she says, hey, we're going to go to lunch for, at a park, and we're just months from our wedding, and she says, uh, in essence, you've you got to make a decision. It's either the job or me, because I, this is not what I'm signing up for. And so then we, you know, we got married and we discovered, you know, I thought, well, this will bring fulfillment. This will bring my ultimate satisfaction. And we discovered we were two broken people in a broken relationship. And so what happens when you put two broken people together, you look at each other as a life preserver and then you both go down. So the first 10 years of our marriage were horrible. I mean, it was just, it was really bad. Now, last 33 have been just wonderful and blissful and all that good, good stuff. But, uh, and then you think, you know, kids are going to do it for you. And then you find out that kids aren't givers, they're takers. They suck the life out of you. They don't give life. So, you, you know, we, we just travel all different avenues, but I don't tell you what, when I found Jesus and found out that Jesus was the fulfiller of my life, the savior of my soul, and the only one who could bring me ultimate satisfaction, when you focus and center on that relationship, everything else falls into place. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. You almost believe that. So hopefully by the end of this message, maybe you will. All right, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we are going to be looking at the first 14 verses. Next week, we'll move to chapter 8, because I've got four weeks to get done with this book. Therefore, um, we're hitting a chapter a week, so I'm not going to do the whole chapter. Some chapters, I'll only do part of the chapter, maybe all of it, as time permits. So, um, hopefully, you picked up an outline as you entered into the auditorium, and we're going to... Uh, dive into this as we have been looking through the book of Ecclesiastes on the topic of living life backwards. And so the main theme of Ecclesiastes, remember this is written by King Solomon. Solomon's at the end of his life. He's looking back over his life and thinking about all the mistakes that he made and all the ways that he tried to live life, finding fulfillment and satisfaction in many things other than God, right? He, he traveled everything avenue you could possibly travel. Wealth could afford him everything. He had luxury. He, he got into all kinds of building projects and, you know, parks and vineyards. You name it, he did it, trying to find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction, life, as he calls it, under the sun. And one of the things he concludes in this book is that life in this world really eludes our control. See, we, we try to live life thinking we are in control of things, only to discover we're not in control of things, and that life can be very harsh. Life can be very cruel. Things just don't always turn out the way we desire for them to turn out. And there are a lot of different ways we can approach this and how we can respond to this. But when we realize we cannot explain everything, for example, people that we love will die. And how do you explain somebody who dies at age five or somebody who dies at age 95? Here's a person who loves Jesus, walks after Jesus, serves Jesus, has cancer at 35, they die. Here's somebody who's 80 years old, who could care less about Jesus, is, is 
cantankerous and grumpy and bitter and angry, and they live to be 85. How do you explain that? You can't. There is no explanation. And so sometimes life causes us to ask questions, questions for which we have no answers. And sometimes we know that through life there is injustice that happens. Justice is not always done here on earth. But God will ultimately render just justice in the end when he you know, brings us all to a climax. Sometimes there's oppression here on earth. There are the poor that are here and the wealthy and everything in between. And we have this throbbing uh, hurt in the core of our soul oftentimes when we have journeyed through some of our own personal pain and valleys and we're, we're searching, we're asking, we're, we're like, Lord, can you explain this to me? Why is this happening? Why has this happened? Why can I not get over this? Why can I not set aside or, or, or at least experience some kind of healing from this anger, this hurt, this bitterness that's controlling my life and controlling the way that I think and the way I approach people and life in general? And so Solomon in this chapter begins to unfold and unpack some of this. And he says, listen, basically... You can live life in one of two ways. You can either live wisely or you can live foolishly. And then he begins to make contrasts all down through this chapter about those who live wise and those who live foolish. So let me define what I mean by that. If you're living wisely, you are willing to face reality. In other words, you, you look at life and you know that life is not always fair. You look at life and, and there are ups and downs and and so rather than trying to create the world as you want it to be, you are able to live in this world as it really is. You're not trying to make it something that it is not. You're not trying to deconstruct like what's happening in our society now. We're trying to deconstruct everything that is wrong and try to rebuild it absent God. And then we think, well, that will make everybody on a level playing field, and that will make life totally fair, and, and everybody will, you know, be happy and, and grateful and just, you know, in a wonderful mood all the time. Never going to happen, because we live in a fallen world among fallen people, as Solomon has already told us, that the human heart is extremely self-deceptive, but we try, right? And then the foolish, the foolish flee reality, um, they try to numb the pain of life. They, they try to, um, in many different ways, cope with life through various coping mechanisms. Whatever your coping mechanism might be, when you are in pain, when you feel depressed, when you feel let down, when you feel hurt, when you feel like somebody has, uh, in, in some way, um, you know, brought some kind of harm against you, what is your coping mechanism in life? For some of you, you just veg out in front of a TV. You might veg out with videos. You might veg out binge watching Netflix. You might uh, shop. You might, it, there's a thousand different things. It can be drugs. It can be alcohol. It can be sexual escapades. It can be a thousand different things. But the foolish, rather than facing the reality of life and living with wisdom, tend to flee the reality of life and just try to cope as best they can so that at least for a while you do not have to feel anything and you just kind of live in this land of make-believe instead of present reality. So I want us to look at six contrasts that Solomon makes in the first 14 verses and three options that you basically have in life. Those op options will be very quick, right? Here's the number one. 
thing that he says. Look in verse, chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Now, we look at those contrasts, those paradoxes, and we think, what? Are you kidding me? How in the world can my day of death be better than my day of birth? So here's the, the contrast that he makes. A wise person understands that every decision they make becomes a part of their permanent story. Every decision you make in life becomes a part of your permanent story. We talked a little bit about this last week. So here's the question you ultimately want to ask yourself. At the end of this life, what do I want people to say about me? One of the things you do not know what it's like is to live on the other side of you. <laughs> but everybody around you does. So if you ever thought about the question, at the end of my life, when it's all said and done, and, and this, I, I'm done in this world, and it's my day to die, and people are standing at my funeral, what do I want people to say about me? What story do I want told? Because every decision you make in life becomes a part of your story. Every decision, the story of your life. We know what, we never know what or who hangs in the balance of the decisions we make. But what I think I do know is that private decisions have public implications. We make a lot of decisions privately in thinking, well, this is just a decision for myself. It's only going to you know, be for me. And if it's a good decision, bad decision, or anything in between, it really doesn't matter because the implications are only privy to me. Well, that's not really true. Private decisions don't remain private. Our personal decisions always impact others ultimately. Let me give you an example. How many broken hearts have there been because somebody started dating a guy or a gal and um, they knew in their heart when they were dating them that there were some red flags. Like, this is probably not a good long-term relationship. And certainly this isn't a person I should marry. However, your emotions kicked in because you're not getting any younger and your parents are putting pressure on you to get married so they can have some grandkids because it's time to have grandkids. Marlon and I went through that. We were married nine years before we ever had our, our first child. And, we, you know, we would always hear the you know, the, the questions at all the family gatherings. Well, so when are you guys going to start having kids? You know, your, your biological locks are kind of wearing down. And, and so you feel kind of the pressure. And so here's all these red flags going off. But emotionally, you're just like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to make this decision regardless of my inner reservations. And you make the decision and you marry the person. And shortly after that marriage takes place, you wake up one morning and realize, I've made the biggest mistake in my life. And the end result is a divorce happens. And so a personal decision now is made known public because everybody knows what's gone on. You see, we don't think in terms of story because we're distracted by the pressure of our emotions that we feel at the moment. Your emotions can become like a very thick fog. In other words, you're not seeing clearly, you're not sizing things up very well, 
and it causes you to lose focus of the broader context, namely our stories. So whether that emotion is love or lust or jealousy or anger, anger or insecurity or anxiety, emotions complicate our decision-making process and there are very few decisions you'll ever make that are not emotionally charged from somewhere or someone. And so um, we tend to focus all our attention on the immediate rather than the ultimate. We're left to thinking in terms of options and choices rather than our story. What story do I want to be able to tell my grandchildren what story do I want told about me? So if I live my life backwards and say, you know what? There is a destiny out in front of me called death. If I start there and work my way backwards, then it helps me to navigate my decision-making process if I'm thinking in terms of not what I need immediately, but in terms of what story do I want to be able to tell? What story do I want told about me as I'm making decisions that are not only going to impact my life, but are also going to impact the lives of people around me. That makes sense? And so this is what Solomon is trying to, to, to build here. Notice he says, a good name is better than fine perfume. What's, what's your name? A good name. It's your reputation. Right? So ladies, if she wants to snag a dude, you know, you, you, you pay attention to your cologne, you're kind of setting up an atmosphere, or a perfume, an atmosphere, guys are about all about the cologne, except guys, you know, we put on enough cologne that everybody smells it, you know, five seats over, or if you're in a locker room with a bunch of junior high boys, all you can smell is, you know, the um, Axe body wash uh, all over the place, but you're, you're wanting to create this environment of a pleasing aroma, and nothing is more pleasing to someone else than a person of good reputation. And this is what Solomon's coming at. And our, our reputation is built over time. Watch this. But it can be lost at any time. You can spend your life building a good reputation and lose it instantaneously. There have been many, many people who were savvy in the business world, built huge portfolios and a lot of wealth, but because of a shady business deal, immediately lost their reputation. It was a Ponzi scheme or some other thing out there. Or Many people have you know, had good reputation about being a, a good husband, a good father, and built that reputation over time, but then all of a sudden was tempted with an affair dove into that affair, committed adultery, and lost both his wife and children because of that one lapse of judgment. This is what Solomon is warning us. John Geddert has been in the news this week. He was the coach of the 2012 USA Women's Gymnastics that won gold, but then all of a sudden their indictments were brought down against him. 20 counts of human trafficking. He wasn't trafficking you know, girls in, his, in the sex market, but he was mishandling and misusing the, the young girls who were on his team and was abusive to them and two counts of sexual assault against them and one count of racketeering. He was under uh, reporting his actual income. And so as they're coming to hand over you know, the, the, the evidence and arrest him, he pulls out a gun and he shoots himself and takes his own life. Here's a guy who built a reputation of being this, this 
incredible coach, 63 years old. People would pay inordinate amounts of money for their kids to be under his tutoring and preparing them for the Olympics, but it's all gone in a moment. And so is his reputation when all these things began to come out about what he was doing behind closed doors. And so Solomon says, in essence, just as you build a wall stacking one brick at a time, it is called your reputation. You should always keep in the forefront of your mind what is the story I want to tell, what's the story I want told about me. And whenever I'm confronted with decisions, especially emotionally charged decisions, if I want to maintain my reputation, the only question I need to ask myself is what is the right thing to do? What's the right thing to do? It might not be the easiest thing to do. It may be the painful thing I have to do, but it is the right thing in order to maintain my reputation. And so he says, this is what a wise person will do. And because he says, listen, in verse uh, 1b and 2, he says, uh, the day, day of death's better than the day of birth. Um, life, he says, is framed by death. You go into a cemetery, and oftentimes the gravestones, you have a date, the date of their birth. You have a date, the date of their death. There's a dash in between. That dash represents your life. So we come into this world through birth. It's a time of celebration. It's a time, uh, you know, we, we celebrate the birth of our, our children and grandchildren, uh, but then there is that, that day of death. And so if you're understanding that you have a final destination, it's like driving my my wife's truck, you know, if I want to go somewhere, I plug into the navigation in the vehicle. This is where I want to end up. This is where I'm starting from. I want to get from here to here. And the best way, the, the least amount of time, the best route. And so who helps us with that in our lives? God says, I'm the one who brought you into this world. I'm the one who's going to take you out of this world. And everything in between, that dash in your life, I want you to build a good godly reputation. So allow me to be your navigational system by which I get you there and you maintain your reputation. Because when it's all said and done, you're going to have to tell a story and the story is going to be told about you. And you want it to be a good story, I hope. We all make mistakes a long way. I, I get that. I understand that. And so, again, we prepare for first days, you know, weddings and birthdays. When our children are born, I remember when our, our kids were born, and, you know, it's like, man, what, you ask questions like, what, what, what am I going to do with this, this child? And am I going to be a good father? Am I not going to be a good father? And then you find out things that you didn't know, like you got to wrap them up like a burrito, because uh, they like that. It feels like they're in the womb. And, and I, did not know, I did not know this, that when you take a child home, you got to help form that kid's head. Like, you gotta, you got to move them around so they don't get flat side on one head, you know, side of their head. you got to turn them over like a, you're flipping a burrito. Uh, and who knew? Uh, but it's a time of celebration, and we think of time, we think of, of death as, as a time of mourning, and so he says, the house of mourning is greater than the house of birth. When someone dies, we mourn. But when there's birth, there's happiness, there's celebration. But here's the distinction between the two. Birth gives you the greatest sense of joy, joy that you treasure up in your heart. Death gives you the opportunity to be the greatest evangelist. Because when people come to your funeral, they're forced to deal with the complex issues of life. Why am I here? 
Who created me? What's the purpose of my life? What happens after death? What's on the other side? See, people don't ask these questions when there's a birth, but when they have to go to a funeral, they start asking those questions. And when you have someone standing up and saying, well, you know what, my beloved brother here has died, has exited this earth, but to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, and you can go into this message of hope, you can go into this message as to why God put us here, what we've been made for, what we've been created for, this, this. so the bottom line is, and what he tells us is simply this, death makes people face reality rather than flee reality. So whatever story you want told about you, build your reputation one brick at a time. Always do the right thing. Another person in the storyline here recently has been Ravi Zacharias, who was a great theologian, great Christian apologist. But after he died, another life was discovered, one of sexual escapades, and now the, the Christian world has been rocked by us, and, and the unbelieving world is like, see, we told you th- this Christianity stuff doesn't mean anything. Jesus can't change your life. It's always going to be this way. And, and the stories go on, and the conversations are going on. And so, again, the ultimate question the wise person asks themselves at the end of this life, what story can I tell my grandkids And what story will be told about me? Here's the second one. Verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. And so a wise person learns how to grieve. It is very important in life that you learn how to grieve. Remember what we said about this book? Remember what Solomon's telling us? Life is not always easy. It is not always pleasant. It can be extremely hurtful. It can be extremely painful. People that we love die all the time. We have no guarantee as to how long life is going to last. We have no guarantee as to how we're going to die. Some people you know, just kind of rock back in their chair and fall asleep. Other people die horrendous deaths through cancer and suffering and pain and everything in between. And it absolutely rocks our world. And if we're not careful, we allow all of this anger and all of this bitterness and all this resentment to build up in our emotional system. And we've not learned how to greet the process of grieving those things so that we can move on in life. And rather, we stay chained to the past because I've never properly grieved this area in my life. And now it's those emotions have leaked into my emotional system that is trying to, I'm trying to move forward. I'm trying to get there, but I can't get there. I'm still chained back here, but all the negative emotions get poured out of my life into the lives of those around me. You can't hold in toxicity in your emotional system without it coming out in multiple different ways in your relationships with other people. You need to do, what do you need to do with your pain, your grief, your loss, your failures, your destruction? In culture, we celebrate our wins publicly and we mourn our losses privately. You have a good day? Tell friends about it, right? 
Man, I had a great day today. You get on Facebook, you tell everybody, man, it was an awesome day today. I had a wonderful day. You take pictures of your food and you take pictures of everything. It was a wonderful day. What happens when it's a bad day? It's a really sucky day and things just not gone well at all. We tend to mourn in isolation. And the result is we become lonely, broken, depressed people who then look for a way to self-medicate. And we suffer in silence. This is not the way God constructed humanity, nor the church in particular. He calls us to, to, to grieve in community. Now, in the Bible, in the Eastern way of thinking, lamenting was a very, grieving was a very public thing. Like when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, and Mary and Martha were there, but they weren't there by themselves. There were people from all over the community who were there grieving with them. And so in the Eastern mindset, when someone died, you would, you would lay the body out in the home. And for seven days, people would sit in Shiva with you in silence and helping you, you know, navigate through the process of mourning and grieving. But in our, our Western mindset, uh, we tend to isolate. And so, again, social media kind of adds to that pressure because we want to put forth the facade that, you know, we're always winning at life, we're never losing, and that nothing bothers us, and we can handle it, and we can, we can deal with it. And so lamenting is about grieving. It's about mourning. It's about processing. It's about healing. This is part of what Ecclesiastes was. Solomon is lamenting, he's mourning, he's grieving all of the things he had done wrong in his life, and he's trying to process it, and you're looking into his journal of process and saying, what, where did I make mistakes? Where did I go wrong? And how can I, how can I heal from this? And what you fail to grieve becomes grievous. And conversely, a fool only thinks, Solomon says, just about having a good time, right? It's easy for somebody who's foolish, you don't want to deal with reality in life, you don't want to deal with your grief, so you just kind of make light of it. Oh, it's okay, I'm over that, doesn't bother me anymore, I've moved on in my life, no big deal, I don't need to go back there, it doesn't affect me anymore. Oh, really? Because those living on the other side of you would beg to differ, it's really bothering you, but you don't see it, and that's the problem. And so all they're doing is avoiding and ignoring the pain. Wise people embrace their grief, and they navigate through it. Foolish people do just the exact opposite. So there are five stages of grief that I put on your outline that you need to be aware of. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with these many, many years ago. She dealt with death and dying and, and said, noticed that whenever people um, have received news that is life-shattering, life-altering, you kind of go through this process of, of five stages of grief. The first one is that of denial. Like some of you go to the doctors, you've had tests, possible cancer. They say the doctor confirms you have cancer. All of a sudden you like... Immediately your mind goes, oh, well, they've, they've mixed up my test with somebody else. This can't be right. Uh, you, you go back maybe to another time that they mixed up your test with somebody else. And so 
you go into this time of denial and this time of isolation and your mind just begins to like shut down and, and isolate about this just really can't be happening to me. And then you move into anger and you're just angry about it. You're frustrated about it. Why me? And why now? And why at this time? And this isn't fair. And uh, you know, there's so many other people out there that are far worse than I am. And yet they don't have cancer. They're not dealing with this issue. They're not dealing with... And so we go off in anger and anger is... A, a God-given emotion. It's, it's a good emotion to have as long as you, you, you learn how to navigate it. So anger is a secondary response. It's always responding to something else, and you're responding to the news that you've received, that you're in this situation in your life, and then you move into the period of bargaining, and it's like, I'm going to, make a, I'm going to cut a deal with God. Oh, Lord, if you will heal me of this cancer, I promise you I will do this, this, and this. And, or, God, if you heal my mother, I, I promise you I'll, I'll do this, this, and this. Or, God, if you heal or if you, tr- if you change this situation, if, if, you, if you make this go away, and a thousand different things, that we can say, oh, Lord, uh, uh, this is what I will do for you. And then ultimately we, we lapse into depression. And depression is, is that like I, there's nothing I can do about this. I, I can't do anything about the divorce. I, I, I can't keep my child from dying. I can't keep my friend from losing her battle with cancer. That company's going to fire me. The money's not coming back. And, and so we... we we get into this depression, and eventually we move into acceptance for some. Some get stuck in this depression. People who are foolish, people who are unwilling to face the reality of life, oftentimes struggle a lot moving into acceptance. They don't want to face the reality of what is in front of them. they rather live in this fake facade world they've made up in their mind that kind of keeps them sheltered and hidden from what is reality. But you need to move into acceptance and the rules have been changed. The script has been flipped. Life is different than what it's going to be. May I add a sixth one? And you can put this off the side. And that is, it is very helpful if you move into a time of thanksgiving. Listen to me. You're not thanking God because you have cancer. You're not thanking God because somebody died. That's not what thanksgiving is about. Thanksgiving is about, God, I don't understand. I don't have the answers. I can't explain it. You know what's going on inside of me, but Lord, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm thanking you, God, that this is not outside the realm of your control. You are sovereign. You are God. You make the decisions. I don't. I, I'm, I'm in need of your help. I'm in need of your comfort. I'm in need of your strength. I'm in need of the power of Christ resting upon me. And so, Lord, I thank you that you promised me you would never walk, I would never walk alone, I would never be by myself, that I have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me, who can bring peace in the midst of my chaos, who can enable me to take this journey and know that on the other side, you can make beauty out of ashes. That's what a wise person does. Wise people grieve, foolish people turn to coping mechanisms. Number three, verse five, it is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. So a wise person knows that rebuke can be better than praise. Rebuke better than praise. Now, most of us do not have enough wisdom or insight to navigate all the experiences that we're going to have in this lifetime. Someone was rightfully said, if you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. 
Well, people who are successful in areas of their life, if you sit down and talk to them, that will readily admit, look, I didn't get here on my own. You know, I talk to people, I learn from people, I learn from their mistakes, I learn from their successes, I took a lot of notes. I wanted to know, if you see somebody who has a marriage that's last 50, 60 years, you probably ought to, if you're young and getting married, you probably ought to sit down with them and say, hey, tell me, give me, all, give me the ins and outs about your relationship. I don't want just sugar-coated. Talk to me about the hard times and how you navigated through those. And talk to me about the good times and, and what you did with those. And, and what were your dreams and what were your aspirations. And take a lot of notes because they got something that is golden that you need. All right, this is what a wise person would do. Unfortunately, I wasn't that wise when I got married. So my wife and I decided, we, we, in the first 10 years of our marriage, we'll make every mistake you can possibly make. Until my wife sits down face to face and says, I want a divorce. To which I responded, if that's what you want, okay. But I'm not going to be the one who bails on this relationship. And most of you know our story, that over time, God spoke to my wife, and he spoke to me in very specific things, and um, you know, God began that process of, of healing our relationship. And so the, the point is, we all need help, we all need counsel, we all need advice, and here's what I've discovered throughout life, is that both wise and foolish people are more than ready to give you that advice. So the question is, how do I distinguish between who's foolish and who's wise? Well, Solomon helps us out here. He, he tells us a couple of things about foolish people. And the, um, the first one is this, is that foolish treat everything with silliness. That's kind of unfitting, right? So he says, it's, it's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to songs of fools, like the crackling of thorns. And this is the person, like, everything is a joke. Nothing's ever serious, like, you know, a foolish person, like, let's say you're, you're, you have a loved one, a, a family member, or a spouse, or a child, or whatever, and they're in the hospital, and it's, it's, it's a really critical time, and so people who don't want to deal with reality, they'll kind of like bebop in the room, and then they'll just kind of, you know, start spouting off some stupid, silly things. Like, they don't want to deal with reality, and they're just trying to get everybody to laugh, ha, 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 this is not a laughing matter. This is not an appropriate time. Now, if we're at a party together, hey, make me laugh. I love that, right? So when my mother had her stroke and, you know, she, she wakes up, she's paralyzed on one side. She can't speak. She can't communicate. And somebody comes in just like, you know, a family member is just like, I don't want to deal with this reality. So let's just, you know, just make this like a fun time. Well, it wasn't a fun time. And it really wasn't appreciated, right? So that's, that's kind of what a foolish person does. And here's the second thing about a foolish person is that they don't last over the long haul. That's why he talks about this fire out of thorny bush. That is, you know, a thorny bush is dried up, and so you, you put it together as kindling, and you light it, and, it, and it, it, you know, the fire just like, poo, it's very intense, very hot, but it doesn't last very long. And so this is also what a foolish person is. They, they will not walk through thick and thin over the long haul with you. Now, they may start out, but they're poor finishers, right? You, you ever had a situation where you have a, a, maybe it's a mother or a father and caretakers and, and everybody else is, is helping out as much as they can except that one person, 
Right? That one person, they don't feel like it's their obligation. They don't feel like it's their responsibility. And that, that's what Solomon say. That because there's a cost involved when you walk with somebody through a hard season. So they say a lot, but do little. And they're nowhere to be found, you know, when it's time for the first trip to the, the hospital to take chemo. Or it's, it's time for the, you know, the trip to the divorce attorney or whatever it might be. And so when it comes to hurting people, wounded, suffering, struggling people, the question is, are we wise or foolish? Fools tend to be shallow. Everything's a joke. They fade fast. The wise will stick with you to the very end. And the wise are not afraid to say hard things to you. Foolish people won't cross that bridge. Because sometimes when we are in need of counsel, when we're in need of navigation, we're in need of direction. Somebody, some, somebody said to me, when I first, within my first month here at this church, this is 22 years ago, this, this individual walked in my office and he says, Pastor, I just want you to know one thing. I said, all right, what's that? He says, I just want you to know that about every three or four months, you're probably going to need to give me a real kick swift in my pants. And what he meant by that is, you know, I'm going to start veering off track, and I need somebody who's going to give me a hard word. I need somebody who's going to be honest enough to say, hey, what are you doing that for? What are you, why would you be doing that? What are you doing over there? I'll give you a sweet kick in the pants. What I discovered was he didn't like it. Nobody does. When you have to speak truth to people and you've got to give them a hard word, you will almost always get pushback. There's very few people who say, you know what, I'm so grateful you told me that about myself. Because remember, we don't know what it's like to live on the other side of us, but you do. And so when we're confronted with us, we don't like what us sees. <laughs> That's bad English. I don't like what I see. And so when I look in the mirror, I see one thing. You see something else. You confront me about that and say, hey, you're getting off path. Your navigation system's out of kilter. Let's get you back in, you know, back in in line with what with, with, with the Word of God says, then we give pushback. And so Solomon says, a wise person, it knows that a rebuke can be better than praise. Number four, verse seven. Exhortation turns a wise man into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. Then the end of the matter is better than its beginning. And patience is better than Pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. So here's number four. A wise person accepts that the hard way is better than the easy way. Again, Solomon's looking back over his life. Maybe he's brought his grandkids up and set them on his lap and says, Hey, uh, grandkids, um, I'm going to give you grandpa's words for the long haul. And these are things you need to do, things you need to not do, things you should avoid, things you should be engaged in. And I just want to drop some wisdom in your lap. Have you ever driven somewhere and um, tried to take a shortcut, tried to take the easy route, only to find out it was a dead end and you had to backtrack to where you were? And so what is true in life physically also is true in our lives oftentimes spiritually, is that we are always looking for the easy way. We're always looking for the easy thing. We're always asking God to take the you know, to fill up the valleys so I don't have to walk through the valley. I just want to stay on the mountaintop all of my life. That is not reality in life. Nobody lives on the mountaintop 
24-7, 365 days a year. There are things that are going to happen in your life that are devastating. There are things that are going to happen in your life that are absolutely painful. There are things that are going to happen in your life that will rock your world. And the first thing we want God to do is make it easy for us, Lord. When we have said through this series over and over again, some kind, God does his deepest work in your deepest pain that usually ultimately ends up becoming your greatest ministry. And so a bribe is a shortcut, right? It's trying to make something happen that otherwise probably wouldn't or happen faster. Someone's defined this way. A bribe is how much we will sell our integrity for. You know, there's examples of extortion and bribing. You know, if you own a business, you're overbilling or you're padding expense accounts or if you're coveting other things people have, you're poisoning your soul. And so in verse 8, he says, the end of the matter is better than the beginning. Patience better than, than pride. You know, it's easy to get fired up some, over something in the beginning. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who watch way too much HGTV, get all fired up. We're going to remodel our house, man. We're going we're to demo this thing and top to bottom. And they do. They get in and they demo it, which everybody likes demo. You get to knock things down and crash things and beat things up. And then once you've demoed that, once you've knocked it all down, you've got this huge mess. I mean, massive mess. And then you've got to get all that out of there. You've got to put it all back together again. But, but what happens is when you watch these shows on TV, all they give you are the highlight reels. What they don't show you is that there are probably five, six, maybe seven teams of experts in different areas, plumbing, electrical, drywall, flooring, you know, the whole nine yards, who are in there working nonstop on that house so they can get it done in six weeks, and we think we can do the same thing. So it doesn't happen, right? I watched a show the other day, these two guys, they bought a house, and they were going to demo that thing. It had burned, part of it had burned, they were going to demo it, and they figured it would take them six months, X number of dollars. 18 months later, and $400,000 invested, it wasn't even close to being done. That's what I say. So we're always... We're always looking for the easy route, right? I, my wife and I built a house, probably never do that again. But, you know, you can't say to the builder, hey, um, get this thing done in six months, right? Or get this done in four weeks or whatever. It's just it's not going to happen. It's like people would walk in the, the gym and say, Lord, I want abs. Give me six-pack by next week. And God says, you got to be kidding me. I gave you a keg. What more do you want? <laughs> pride, watch this. Pride is a good starter, but patience is what will get you to the end. We can start a lot of things out of pride, right? I'm going to do this. I got this. I can do this. You know, every, everyone is a builder on demo day. Every mother is perfect in her second trimester of uh, pregnancy, and then the baby shows up, and every guy is unbelievable date on the second date, <laughs> but then later you discover otherwise. Now, here's the warning behind this is that, watch, Satan will always tempt you to take the easy way out. Throw patience aside. I've got an alternative route for you. And this is Solomon's warning. Wise versus the foolish. Because the foolish person will always look for that easy way. Satan always puts his best up front. While God saves his best for the last. 
The immediate and initial impact of alcohol, drugs, illicit sex may be exciting on the front end, but on the backside, those actions can be very, very destructive. That's why the end is better than the beginning. A person who ends well did so because he or she was made wise choices on the front end and was patient and ethical. I always think about Joseph. You know, Joseph, God gave him this dream about what God was going to do with his life. His brothers sell him off into slavery. He's in Potiphar's wife house, and he's over at seeing her house, and Potiphar's wife is trying to get him in bed every day. He refuses, and finally, you know, she comes in and says, like, this is it, man. This is going to, be, this is going to happen. And now the easy thing for Potiphar to have done was to engage in what it is she wanted, but instead, he's just like, he bolted. Right? He just bolted. She pulled his clothing off on his way out, but he was bolting. Why? Because he realized that he had a story to tell, and there's a story to be told about him, and he didn't want the story to end, and Joseph was, man, walking with God, and God was blessing his life, and then all of a sudden he caved into the easy pathway that Satan was offering him. Instead, he took the hard path and ended up in prison for eight years before he ever found release and then eventually God puts him in second command in Pharaoh's kingdom. And so he says, harbored hate is easy, is the easy way. Joseph could have become very angry with his brothers, very bitter, because at the end, when he's in second command, guess who comes? Because there's a famine in the land. Joseph's brothers and his father have to come to him, not knowing that he's still alive. And so... It would have been easy for Joseph to harbor anger and bitterness. Here's what Joseph said. He says, hey, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for my good and for his glory. And so that's what Solomon warns. He says, listen, do not let anger, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness spring up in your heart because if it does, and Satan, listen, Satan will say, but you're justified, but it's okay, but it's not wrong, but it, and, and here's why you need to. And so then the reason we do is because we want to we hold court so if that person hurts me again, I got ammunition against him. Listen, the hardest thing in the world to do is to forgive people who have hurt you and harmed you and wronged you in some way. That's the hard route. The easy route is to harbor anger and forgiveness and bitterness and unforgiveness. But listen, the outcomes are totally different, absolutely different. And God says, we're always to forgive others just as Christ forgave us. That's what a wise person does. Because I've got a story to tell. There's going to be a story told about me. And what I don't want my, somebody to say about, well, you know, Greg, he was going pretty good there for a while, but he got all wrapped up in that anger and bitterness and unforgiveness, and he became a cranky old man, and now he's just like downright cantankerous. That's the way he lived the rest of his life. Number five, a person sees today as better than yesterday. Verse 10, do not say where are the old days better than these, for it is not the wise to ask such questions. Wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter, but advantage of knowledge is this. The wisdom perseveres the life of its possessor. And so... Um, I don't know if you've ever taught a teenager how to drive, but one of the things you don't want a teenager doing when they're trying to learn how to drive is constantly looking in their rearview mirror, 
right? They're, they're paying attention to who might be in the back seat or what's behind them. You, the only way you, you can <laughs> you drive well is if you're looking out the front window, right? We have a rearview mirror for a reason and side mirrors, but you, that's not your focal point. Your focal is what is in front of you. And so sometimes people get so enamored and wrapped up in what is in front, behind them, they can't move forward in their lives. You cannot move forward until you've come to peace and resolution from your past. So here's what happens to people, I'm just very quickly, is that if we're not careful and, and we're stuck in the past, then we begin to rewrite the past, like a, a bit of a nostalgia. It's like, well, you know, things were so much better back when. You know, I hear people, older people all the time going, well, you know, back in the day when I was a kid, things were so much better back then. Really? Uh, do you remember what it was like back when you was a kid? Let's take away all the modern conveniences you got right now and uh, the fact that you had to go out and get up early in the morning, go down there and muck out the barn from the cows and the horses and get out there and help plow the field with grandpa and uh, you know, all these other things that you had to do as a cow. Really, those are the better days. It always reminds me of the nation of Israel. They were in Egyptian bondage for 400 years, mistreated by the Egyptians. And when God got them out of there, what is the first thing they did? Well, we want to go back to Egypt. You know, we had onions and leeks back there. It was so much better back. Are you kidding me? Do you remember what it was like? And so what Solomon is challenges us with this list, listen, you, you got to move forward in life and enjoy the present moment. And you have two oars on this boat. It's called wealth and wisdom. And wealth can help you out in certain ways, but wisdom is far much better, he says, because it will help you navigate where it is God is taking you. And so a wise person sees today as better than yesterday. As Paul says, listen, I... I I remember back here in the past, but I press forward. I'm pressing forward. I learn from my past. I, I bring healing in my past because I want to move forward. I'm, I want to move forward with the Lord because I want, I'm, my best days are like right now. Right? I may not have tomorrow. I got today. I may not have my wife next week, but I got her right now. So I want to enjoy her as much as I can while we're together because we don't know what our future holds. Therefore, the wise thing to do is to not get hung up and stuck back here in the past to hold you back there, but learn how to learn from the past, heal the past, move forward in the present, and enjoy the journey. Number six, a wise person holds everything and everyone with an open hand. God has a permissive hand and an active hand, which means everything that enters into our lives, either God is responsible directly or he has allowed it pass through his permissive hand. Either way, here's what I've discovered, and we'll close, close this out. You know, the great example of this is Job, right? Job didn't, he wasn't privy to the conversation between God and Satan. Satan says, hey, let me, the only reason Job loves you guys is because you've so blessed his life. You've given him kids and crops and servants and you know, all the land, and let me, let me touch him. Let me touch him, Lord. I'll, I'll, get, I'll rock his boat. He'll curse you to your face. God gave him permission. How do you explain that? And he did. He lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his livestock. He lost his home. He lost everything. But his wife who said, why don't you just curse God and die? The one thing, Lord, you had to leave me was her. <laughs> All the things you could have left me. 
But in the end, here's what Job said. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? See, what we want in this life is we want God to take away all the bad things, all the painful things, all the things that can rock our world. But as I remind you before, this world is not heaven. It will never be heaven. Our world is going to get rocked. There are going to be painful things. God is going to allow things to enter into our lives, not because he's trying to punish you. Jesus took your punishment on the cross, not because he doesn't like you, not because he doesn't love you or care about you. He just knows we live in a crooked world among crooked people, and God's the only one who can straighten out all the crookedness, and that will not happen until all of this world comes to its final end and climax, and God creates the new heaven and the new earth, and he takes everything that was crooked, everything that, Satan dist- that sin and Satan distorted, and he makes it perfect as in the Garden of Eden once again. So in the meantime, you got to put your hope and trust in something. The wise person puts it in him. The wise person says, Jesus is the only one who can fill me up. Jesus is the only one who can be my ultimate satisfaction. So here's your three options in life. You can either become bitter, or you can shut down and isolate yourself, put your protective walls up, Like, are you going to protect yourself from any further hurt or pain? Good luck with that. Or you can be grateful. It's out of an attitude of gratitude that God begins to sift my heart and he begins to bring healing in the process of even the most painful events in my life and in yours. He's a good, good, and a very gracious God. Father, we thank you, praise you, We worship you, adore you for all that you've done on our behalf. God, we we do, we, we sincerely want to live as wise people, not as foolish. God, we know the reality of life is difficult at best, chaotic at times. But Lord, you again are you are our peace in the midst of the storm. You are our rock. Our feet are planted upon a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Our hope and our trust is in the Lord Jesus for our salvation. Our hope and trust is in your hands, O Heavenly Father, to navigate us through this life so that when we reach the end, the story that we tell and the story that's told about us is one that would bring glory and honor to you. In the mighty name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Let's stand.
Set.